Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com slash immigration dash review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. Welcome to the show. As of about 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, DACA is officially back, as a federal judge in New York has ordered USCIS to begin accepting new applications by December 7th. What a year. We've got four cases this week discussing motions to reopen, U-visas, and abandonment of LPR status. Interesting changes to the law, as always. But before I begin the show, I have a question. Is Immigration Review your most binge-worthy podcast? I know Spotify and maybe some other apps are sending out end-of-the-year messages. If Immigration Review is your most listened-to or binge-worthy podcast of 2020, give us a shout-out in your podcast feed and email me a screenshot of the message at kgreg at kktplaw.com. We'd love to see it. And thank you. First. We've got Matter of Melgar, published by the BIA on a Friday in 2020. This case is about ineffective assistance of counsel. So here's the background. Although non-citizens aren't provided an attorney in immigration court, if they can afford an attorney, non-citizens are entitled to effective representation. If a non-citizen is ordered removed and has been the victim of ineffective assistance of counsel, the non-citizen may have grounds to have his or her case reopened and receive another chance at presenting a case. What's more, although there are normally strict deadlines to file a motion to reopen, ineffective assistance of counsel may equitably toll that deadline, sometimes by years. Here, Mr. Melgar was represented by an attorney, and he was ordered removed. He appealed to the Board of Immigration Appeals, and he lost. He filed a motion to remand proceedings with his appeal, because apparently during the appeal, he had become eligible to adjust status through his U.S. citizen's son. But the BIA denied the motion to remand. He then filed, with the assistance of an attorney, a motion to reopen, based on ineffective assistance of counsel. The attorney claimed that he, 
the same attorney, had committed the ineffective assistance of counsel on the motion to remand by mistakenly failing to ask Mr. Melgar the first time for evidence that would have shown that he was a good person, worthy of adjusting status, and remand. Now, since 1988, motions to reopen have been governed by the BIA's decision in matter of Lazada, which has strict procedural requirements, including filing a bar complaint against the offending attorney, and if a bar complaint is not filed, an explanation for why not. However, many circuits have held that matter of Lazada need not be strictly complied with, particularly the bar complaint portion, and particularly if the attorney is falling on his or her own sword, so to speak, like what Mr. Melgar's attorney is doing here. But in this case, the BIA denied the motion and took a really hard line on bar complaints under matter of Lazada. Quote, There may be valid reasons for not submitting a bar complaint, such as death of a prior attorney or his disbarment, but Respondent has not stated one here, except for a self-serving purpose, which we will not accept. End quote. Put another way, to succeed on an ineffective assistance of counsel-based motion to reopen, the BIA would require attorneys to start filing bar complaints in almost all circumstances, even against themselves. Additionally, the BIA held that any ineffective assistance of counsel didn't prejudice Mr. Melgar, as is required to reopen proceedings based on an ineffective assistance claim. This is because he didn't meet the standard of showing, quote, a reasonable probability that, but for his attorney's mistakes, he would have obtained a remand to apply for adjustment of status, end quote. And this is because, in part, the BIA held that Mr. Melgar's conviction under Utah Code Section 76-5-1093B qualifies as a crime of child abuse under INA Section 237A2EI, a negative factor that weighs against his adjustment eligibility. So, Mr. Melgar cannot adjust and his attorney, to have any success on an ineffective assistance of counsel motion to reopen, must file a bar complaint against himself. Quite the profession. Here's a bit more for all effective counsels. First, I believe that whether Lazada must be strictly complied with, i.e. whether a bar complaint must be filed, and the standards for prejudice are governed by circuit law, not the BIA. I could be wrong, but I believe the ineffective assistance of counsel framework flows from constitutional concerns, to which the circuits owe no deference to the BIA matter of Lazada, or matter of Melgar. Mr. Melgar's proceedings appear to have arisen in the Tenth Circuit, so maybe the Tenth hasn't really spoken on the issue, thereby giving the BIA its opening. But, and again, more research required, I believe, practitioners, that any contrary published opinion in your circuit trumps this one. Next, and heads up practitioners, and at least in the Ninth, all of the stuff about prejudice does not apply to motions to reopen based on ineffective assistance of counsel that seek to reopen an in absentia order of removal. That's the Sanchez-Rosales et al. v. Barr case discussed two episodes ago. And finally note that even though non-citizens are generally limited to only one motion to reopen, Mr. Melgar's first motion to remand did not bar his subsequent motion to reopen, because a motion to remand is not the same as a motion to reopen. To be fair, often a motion to remand is filed at the same time or within a motion to reopen, which would constitute a motion to reopen, but not here. Here, Mr. Melgar's attorney filed the motion to remand with the appeal. So, 
Because the case hadn't concluded yet at the time that the motion to remand was filed, there was nothing to reopen. That meant that Mr. Melgar's subsequent motion to reopen was not barred by the numerical limitations in this case. And that is Matter of Melgar. Sticking with motions to reopen, we're going to jump to the 11th Circuit with Alfaro Garcia v. U.S. Attorney General, published on November 30th, 2020. Again, this is a case about motions to reopen, and I believe it's the first immigration decision authored by newly appointed Judge Lagoa. Mr. Alfaro Garcia entered the U.S. without authorization from Mexico in 1996. Following an arrest in 2008 during a driving incident, DHS initiated removal proceedings against him. Mr. Alfaro Garcia agreed to a stipulated order of removal and was therefore physically removed to Mexico. He unlawfully re-entered the U.S. the same year and eventually married a U.S. citizen, who years later filed an I-130 petition for his benefit. When DHS learned all this, DHS issued a notice of reinstatement, meaning, as discussed last week on the podcast, that DHS sought to remove Mr. Alfaro Garcia without an immigration court hearing based on the fact that a prior final order of removal existed against him. In response... Mr. Alfaro Garcia filed a motion to reopen his 2008 case with the immigration court, based on changed country conditions in Mexico that showed he now had a fear of removal to that country, and based on his alleged eligibility for non-LPR cancellation of removal. DHS didn't respond to the motion, and the IJ granted the motion, meaning there was no longer a final order of removal for DHS to reinstate. But then DHS filed a motion to reconsider, which the IJ granted. Apparently, Mr. Alfaro Garcia's motion had failed to mention that he had been physically removed and unlawfully re-entered the U.S. This, according to the IJ and then the BIA, meant that the IJ lacked jurisdiction to decide the motion to reopen, even a sua sponte motion to reopen, and even a motion to reopen to apply for asylum based on changed country conditions. And here, the 11th Circuit agreed that INA Section 241A5 bars IJs and the BIA from considering motions to reopen, even sua sponte motions to reopen, filed by non-citizens if they've been removed and unlawfully re-entered the United States and DHS has reinstated that final order of removal. This holding aligns, according to the 11th, with holdings out of the 5th, 7th, and 9th Circuits. The court distinguished this case from decisions holding that a non-citizen retains the right to file a motion to reopen even after removal. They do. But the right is, quote, forfeited when the alien illegally re-enters the United States and his previous order of removal is reinstated, end quote. Note that last portion. It would appear that the bar only applies if and only if DHS actually reinstates the prior order. So, Mr. Alfaro Garcia cannot reopen his case in the 11th Circuit. Here are two short observations. Worth noting that if Mr. Alfaro Garcia has a fear of return, all is not lost. As the BIA mentioned in the underlying decision, he is still entitled to a reasonable fear interview once the final order is reinstated which, if he passes, would place him in withholding-only proceedings before an immigration judge. Also, again turning to the BIA, in denying Mr. Alfaro Garcia's appeal, the BIA addressed the gross miscarriage of justice standard 
that would otherwise prevent reinstatement, which we discussed last week in the Vega Aguiano v. Barr case out of the Ninth Circuit. The fact that the BIA addressed that standard, apparently on their own in this case, goes to show that if met, and as the Ninth Circuit held last week, immigration authorities would be precluded from reinstating a final order of removal. And that is Alfaro Garcia v. U.S. Attorney General. Next, we're going to head to the Ninth Circuit and talk about a Yunnan immigrant status case published by the En Banc Court on December 3, 2020. Medina Tovar et al. Vizuchowski et al. And to help me talk about this case and U visas generally, I brought in a special guest, socially distanced, of course. With me over Zoom is immigration attorney Jesse Embriano, the legal director of Casa Cornelia Law Center in San Diego. Jesse and I go way back. He was a year ahead of me at the San Diego Immigration Court and possesses a brilliant and creative legal mind. Jesse is the man, and I'm happy to have him on the podcast to discuss this important case. Just as an aside, Jesse and I talk a bit about whether the decision is applicable nationwide. Candidly, we're not really so sure. So even though this podcast is not legal advice, I reiterate that before filing a U non-immigrant application for an after-acquired derivative spouse outside the Ninth Circuit or even in the Ninth Circuit, please do your own research. Now on to the case. So before we get going, Jesse, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am an immigration attorney in San Diego. I work for the nonprofit Casa Cornelia Law Center, um, and I've focused my immigration work on humanitarian immigration remedies. So asylum, used T's and VAWAs, special emergency juvenile status, things like that. And what is Casa Cornelia? What do they do? So we're a nonprofit law firm based in San Diego. The law center has been around for about 27 years, and all of the work we do is humanitarian immigration work. So completely free representation for non-citizens who've been victimized in some way, and under the immigration law, they qualify for some form of protection. And you guys deal with a lot of U visas, right? We do. Um, We've been doing U visas. The the law firm has been doing U visas since uh, the U visa was created, and many individuals that that we represent are eligible for this status because they've been long-term members of our community, and the U visa exists to protect people who've been victimized living in our communities. And because we know that um, members of the immigrant community are especially marginalized and, and are especially vulnerable to victimization, the U visa uh, comes up quite a lot. So the Ninth Circuit and Bonk had something to say about U visas this week. Uh, what's the case and what did the Ninth Circuit say this week? It opened up a new opportunity for individuals to be eligible for, for derivative status. And when you say derivative status, you're talking about there's a principal applicant for the U non-immigrant status and then that individual's family members? Yeah, so Congress created the U non-immigrant status for individuals who have been a victim of a crime here in the U.S. and who have been helpful to the investigation or prosecution of that crime. It was very clearly a visa that was created to ensure that members of the immigrant community weren't scared to go to law enforcement when they were victimized, um, but rather were, were encouraged to work with police and prosecutors and investigators when uh, they had been victimized. And Congress not only said that the direct victim 
of the criminal activity would be eligible for the visa, the EU non-immigrant status, but that also immediate family members would be eligible for this status as well. So in the case of the principal direct victim of the crime, if that direct victim is an adult, if they're over 21, they can seek derivative status for their spouse and their children. And if the direct victim is under 21 years old, they can seek derivative status for not only their spouse and children, but also their parents and their siblings who are under 18 years old. And so what did the nine say in Medina Tovar about all that? So the INA defines the U non-immigrant status at section 101A15U, and that's why we call it a U visa. And like many parts of the statute, the text is relatively short, and it clearly says that there are these options for including your derivatives, your close family members. For many years, the uh, USCIS has had a regulation defining who counts as a spouse. So the regulation at issue here says that in order to include your spouse as a derivative, you have to have the principal victim has to have been married to that individual prior to applying for their U visa. And what the Ninth Circuit said this week was that it's actually possible to include a spouse to seek derivative U status for a spouse who was um, acquired after the, the filing of the application for U non-immigrant status. So U visas are currently taking about five years for adjudication, and we expect that backlog to, to grow. So life happens in those five years. People get married, children are born. And as long as the regulation has exists, practitioners have generally had to tell folks that, no, even though you got married, um, subsequent your life moved on, you got married, you now maybe want to include your spouse in the status because your visa application has, is already pending, it's, it's not possible under the regulations to do so. Um, and the Ninth Circuit looked at the statute. Um, they said that the statute was unambiguous as to who qualifies um, as a spouse, which means that um, they were able to stop their analysis at Chevron step one and just hold that the, valid was it, the regulation was invalid um, under the statute. So the regulation says that a derivative spouse must be married to the principal applicant before the principal filed the U visa application. But the ninth essentially said the statute is not that narrow, that the derivative can be included even if the marriage occurs after the principal U visa application is filed, but before the application is granted, provided they remain married. Is that about right? In a nutshell, yeah. What was it about the statute that led to the Ninth Circuit to, to make that conclusion? They compared it to other places in the statute. So the, the section of the statute refers to family members who are accompanying or following to join. And immigration practitioners will know that that language exists in a number of other places in the statute. Um, and they said, if we look at other places, it's, it's always the case um, that before the status is granted, someone could include, that, include those qualifying family members. The other thing is that this, the, the U visa derivative statute itself includes some limiting language um, for the siblings. So it specifically says that younger principal applicants, those under 21, can include their siblings who are under 18 at the time they file their, their application. So in the case of siblings, Congress clearly made the time of filing the application as a triggering event. And so the Ninth Circuit said, well, they, they didn't create um, a similar triggering event to define spouses. 
And so again, this case originated in district court. Summary judgment was granted for the government. A Ninth Circuit panel affirmed summary judgment. So Miss Medina Tovar lost. But then the Ninth Circuit went in bonk, which means for the majority of judges, and they've issued a very powerful decision for you non-immigrant status, right? They did. And, you know, I think it's a really interesting and bonk holding because the there's not only a panel decision, but also a concurrence and, and a dissent. And the interestingly, and, and I think it's, it, I think we're pretty used to seeing situations where the concurrence is sort of narrowing their holding. In this case, it's the opposite. Um, the, the concurrence would go even farther in who they would recognize um, for, for this kind of derivative status. So yeah, it's, it is a, a really good opportunity for many, many spouses who would have previously been, been left out of eligibility. And, and it's a recognition, I think, that Congress created the U non-immigrant status to protect members of our community. They included the ability to petition for family members to keep families together. And this is a recognition that, that these families should be kept together. That's fantastic news for non-citizens. I think it's, uh, I don't know how good of news it is for Casa Cornelia. It looks like your <laughs> workload just doubled. Am I right about that, Jesse? Well, we, we certainly may see some of our, our clients asking about the, the ability to, to include spouses. Now, that's fantastic. And the U non-immigrant status, that waives pretty much all grounds of inadmissibility, um, except terrorism, Nazis, if they're still around. It has been a long time for those, those couple Nazis who are trying to immigrate to the United States. There is the opportunity to waive some grounds of inadmissibility that may not be, be waivable under the more traditional immigration pathways. So you're absolutely right that a broad waiver is available, both for the principles and the derivatives. Um, certainly, you, you still have to meet the standard that the statute creates. And, and while USAS could um, grant that waiver broadly, um, that doesn't mean they always do. And after you get a U non-immigrant status in the United States, what's the path then to becoming a green card holder? So, so U non-immigrants can seek to adjust their status. They adjust under special provision um, under under the INA. So Congress created, although it is a non-immigrant visa, there there is a direct way, a direct path to to permanent residence if the person's eligible. Awesome, Jesse. Um, is there anything else that we should know about the Medina Tovar case? Well, I think one of the really interesting takeaways from this case is at the time that Ms. Tovar applied for her spouse, the regulations were pretty clear that he was not eligible. So it was sort of necessary to say, at some point, we're, we're going to take this risk and, and push this because the statute is broader than the regulations. And, and that has you know meant this opportunity for, for many others that Perhaps no one could have predicted uh, that that outcome. Um, it is the official position of USCIS that if someone is denied their uh, their U visa application and they're in the in the United States without lawful status, um, that they a notice to appear will be issued and removal proceedings instituted. So this is an example where where someone took a huge risk, took some took some good lawyering. So it's an amazing decision, and the Ninth Circuit is in bank uh, saying all this about. U visas and derivatives, but I guess I'm a bit unclear about what the effect of this is, whether it's just in the Ninth Circuit or nationwide, because I guess I'm just not sure, and I don't deal in U visas so much, I guess I'm just not sure what circuit's law applies and when it applies to U visas. 
Yeah, that's a, a really great question. And I think the answer is we don't know. Uh, U visas are done, ex- are adjudicated exclusively by uh, USCIS. Uh, they they can they cannot be adjudicated by immigration judges. At least that's black letter law. There's been some creative arguments to the contrary, but that seems to be black letter law. Um, you cannot appeal them to the BIA. So there isn't really much circuit law um, that I know of on on U visas. As you were mentioning before we started recording, U non-immigrant status applications are adjudicated in centralized USCIS offices. They're not adjudicated in local offices. So like with your regular adjustment of status application, that's going to be adjudicated in a local office and the circuit of that local office will apply to that adjustment of status application. But that's not the case with U visas. They're not adjudicated in local offices, right? So if the Ninth Circuit en banc has said that USCIS cannot rely on a regulation, it would seem to me that this might be applicable nationwide. Because again, it's not a local office-based thing. More legal analysis would be required than both you and I have time to do on this podcast right now. So practitioners should look into that. The decision doesn't have that kind of limiting language. And I think we will have to, to see what it how it plays out. So in conclusion, the regulation on derivative spouses definitely invalid in the Ninth Circuit, possibly invalid nationwide. Make that argument before USCIS. I think whether or not this changes who ultimately will get a U visa or derivative U visa remains to be seen. So we'll have to see if USCIS starts granting these cases, if they rescind the regulation or just leave it there and everyone knows it's no longer valid. As I mentioned earlier, um, someone who applies affirmatively for a U visa, if they're not already in removal proceedings or, or otherwise um, within the immigration adjudication system is, is taking a huge risk. So I think it's a bit too soon to know whether it's safe to take the plunge. And I think every every attorney is going to have to talk carefully with their clients about um, what the implication of this decision might mean and, and who is now eligible for, for derivative U status. Thanks a bunch, Jesse. I mean, if, if you can believe it, we've now known each other for about seven and a half years, and we've been on this immigration journey together since we started at the San Diego Immigration Court. You were, of course, a year ahead of me. It's been, a, it's been a fun ride, and I can't wait for the next 40 years doing this together. We really have that much longer, Kev? I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I, I assume that uh, our generation will be living to 125, so that's why the, the extent. Fair. Right? Fair. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk about U visas with me. Happy to be here and, and share this information. Like I said, it's really great news. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jesse. And that is Medina Tovar et al. V. Zuchowski et al. Rounding out the week, we've got Mahmoud V. Barr, published by the First Circuit on November 30th, 2020. This is a case about an issue we've never really discussed on the podcast before, abandonment of LPR status. Mr. Mahmoud has been a lawful permanent resident of the United States since 1991. He lived with his family in the U.S. for the next 17 years, but I think he was a child for a lot of it and he never paid taxes and he didn't have health insurance. After losing his job during the 2008 recession, he obtained a temporary visa to go to Canada, where he found work in a restaurant and obtained health insurance. 
Unable to find work in the U.S., he bought a home in Canada, married a Canadian citizen, had a child in Canada, and remained in Canada until returning to the U.S. permanently in November of 2014. He didn't enter earlier because of a hospitalization and because he and his wife needed to get their affairs in order in Canada. The problem is, is that under the law, INA Section 101A13C, LPRs can be treated as applicants for admission, meaning someone without LPR status, if they remain outside the U.S. for a continuous period of 180 days. Now, from 2008 to 2014, Mr. Mahmoud visited the U.S. 10 times, remaining in the U.S. for a few days to several weeks in time, totaling 110 days over the seven-year period. So it appears he probably violated INA Section 101A13C, and he was paroled into the United States by CBP for removal proceedings to determine if he had, in fact, abandoned his LPR status. At the hearing, Mr. Mahmoud testified that he always intended to return to the U.S. and that he kept visiting to search for work. But the IJ held and the BIA then affirmed that objectively, his, quote, actions did not demonstrate an uninterrupted intent to return to and permanently reside in the United States, end quote. And the First Circuit denied the petition. First, it noted the standard, quote, when an applicant for admission has a colorable claim to returning to lawful permanent resident status, the government bears the burden of proving, by clear, unequivocal, and convincing evidence, that he abandoned his status while out of the country and is therefore ineligible for admission into the United States. End quote. In the First Circuit, the abandonment question comes down to two alternative inquiries. Either A, the visit abroad must be for a quote, relatively short duration fixed by some early event, end quote, or B, quote, the visit will terminate upon the occurrence of an event having a reasonable possibility of occurring within a short period of time, end quote. And if the visit is not for a short period of time, quote, the visit will be considered a temporary visit abroad only if the alien has a continuous, uninterrupted intention to return to the United States during the entirety of the visit, end quote. Decently friendly standard in the First Circuit here. Mr. Mahmoud and his seven years outside the U.S., however, did not meet it. Intent to return is, quote, not alone enough, end quote. Rather, courts must look to the record to determine whether the non-citizen's, quote, activities are consistent with an intent to return to the United States as soon as practicable, end quote. Comparing Mr. Mahmoud's family ties, property holdings, and business affiliations within the United States and in Canada, the First Circuit held that, despite his strong family ties in the U.S., all the other factors, quote, weaken his contention that he maintained a continual intention to return to the United States as soon as practicable, end quote. So, and applying the deferential substantial evidence standard on petition, the First Circuit ruled against Mr. Mahmoud. Here's a bit more on abandonment. So even though Mr. Mahmoud lost, here's another nice quote for practitioners to remember for abandonment cases, even where the non-citizen has been outside the U.S. for years. Quote, Though time abroad can be an informative factor, it is not alone determinative in this holistic analysis. End quote. Next, as the First Circuit noted, much of Mr. Mahmoud's argument regarded the fact that he always intended to return to the United States and kept looking for work, 
but that he couldn't find any, so he didn't return. But Mr. Mahmoud failed to present evidence of his search. Had he, the decision may have been different, so build your record, practitioners. Finally, an important distinction needs to be made between applicants for admission and abandonment. INA Section 101A13C says that an LPR can be treated as an applicant for admission for many reasons, including if they have abandoned their status or if they have remained absent from the U.S. for more than 180 days at a time. Now, the government has the burden to establish abandonment, as this case makes clear. But the 180-day provision is obviously easy to determine. And just because an LPR has been absent from the U.S. for 180 days at a time doesn't mean that he has abandoned his LPR status. Again, DHS would eventually have the burden to prove that based on the record as a whole. What 181 days abroad would mean, however, is that, as an applicant for admission, ICE would have the discretion to detain Mr. Mahmoud without even the opportunity for bond for months or even years while the removal hearing played itself out to determine whether or not Mr. Mahmoud abandoned his LPR status. And this is a strategy that ICE has used in recent years and which often makes LPRs give up fighting their case and relinquish their LPR status. And that is the danger of falling within INA Section 101A13C and being treated as an applicant for admission. And that is Mahmoud B. Barr. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you The Immigration Review.